Hello, everyone. You're in it. This is Dave Bernbaum. Today, we have Amir Bozogzadeh, CEO of Virtualeap, a VR software and analytics company that creates a new kind of technology called a digiceutical. We've talked about digiceuticals on the show back when David Rabin from Apollo Neuroscience appeared. His company makes a wearable wristband that provides haptic feedback to treat PTSD and anxiety. Virtualeap is VR software, so it's quite different, but what they have in common is they both use digital technology to attempt to identify and treat disorders. Enhanced VR, which is the first app that Virtualeap created, lets you complete short training sessions that exercise your cognitive faculties. There's research indicating that VR may be effective for pain management, exposure therapy, and behavioral therapy as well. The word digiceutical is fun and buzzworthy enough to make you skeptical that maybe it's just hype. But something I learned from Amir was that just two months ago, the FDA approved the first digiceutical as a treatment for ADHD. And Amir describes this as man walking on the moon for his industry. It's a big deal because it really legitimizes this approach. And if you stop and think about it, the potential to use volumetric data from VR systems to analyze people's movements and identify disorders is pretty obvious. After all, we see outward evidence of cognitive and behavioral disorders in the way people move, speak, and interact all the time, just using our eyes. So it's easy to imagine that the rich data provided by volumetric VR environments could allow us to pick up on more subtle cues. And along with the cues related to disorders, Emotional cues will enable a new kind of emotional analytics, which in turn will lend emotional intelligence to virtual beings. So as you could imagine, Amir is a big picture thinker, and it was really fun discussing science fiction, the singularity, and how the AR cloud will bring mythology back to the center of human culture. So here we go, Amir Bozorgzadeh. So how's it going over there? good it's um we're just part of this uh accelerator program based in new york and their their timings are all messing me up because i'm five hours ahead and they're, they're forcing me to go on 10 p.m calls and i'm a stickler for waking up really early and sleeping pretty early yeah messing with my routines as a as a monkey sometimes when i have to do a call in europe that starts late or goes early you wind up having to go to sleep like 7 p.m wake up at midnight or something we used to call that a disco nap can, can you sleep at will at a different time like that uh no not really you then <laughs> you have to then you have to get up early the morning before in order to plan for it so you're tired enough and it goes on from there got it yeah that's the only way i, I couldn't sleep three hours i still i like being an entrepreneur and working all the time like weekends i'm kind of working here and there it all depends it's kind of like a little bit <clears throat> it's not always so stringent you know yeah on when and why and how um, and I kind of like that stuff. And when you're in an accelerator program that's particularly uh, regimented, like uh, military drills, it reminds me of high school. And I didn't like K-12. I didn't like sitting in a row just not talking when the teacher tells me to and stuff like that. I, I allergic to that stuff. Yeah. Wow. So it's an accelerator that's run like a boot camp. Tell me about that. I'm really happy we got accepted. It's called ERA. And I was in one other accelerator before, which was really hands-off. And I was really like critical of that fact that it had no programming. And so it's like almost like the gods of fate are just uh, striking vengeance on me, giving me the complete opposite. It's called the Entrepreneur's Roundtable Accelerator. And what they do is they bombard you with so many introductions with people to talk to across the various verticals of your business. And so 
the people they introduce me to are just geniuses most of the time. It's not all the time. Wow. It's like speed dating. Like you just interview them quickly and then rotate to a new one. It's speed dating, but then you get matched with friends with benefits who are like a regular thing. Right. Um, right. You know, on a, on a, so I have like two lead mentors that are like weekly calls and three EIRs, entrepreneur and residences. Hmm. And you get three of them and you're weekly on them and they're just phenomenal. So as much as I whine and complain, it is a real privilege to be part of it because we could sure use that kind of sounding boards and bouncing off ideas and sparring with them. Yeah. Is it like making the band where you're also in the gym and you're working on who you are? Or is it just business? That element I like. See, I used to go into programs like the Coaches Institute. They obviously train coaches, but they also have this program called Coactive Leadership that I did in uh, Spain back in 2010. And it was all about, you know, blindfolding you and showing you in an exercise how you will not ask for help you know, mm-hmm. or like, you know, all those types of like staring at each other. It, I think all those coaching techniques came from acting coaches, yeah. like trying to maximize and amplify your spectrum and your range. Yeah. Uh, and then they said, Hey, this stuff is kick-ass for actors being better actors. Can it also make human beings, human, stronger human beings? Yeah. We've been doing a lot of remote workshopping on online tools and one of the things that I found really effective, even more importantly than in-person meetings, is doing warm-ups, the way that they do that in, in acting class, you know? Nice. Just little improv warm-ups that really loosens people up and gets people into the into the meeting. Ever since we spoke last time, yeah. I know we're birds of the same feather, you know? Yeah. Definitely that stuff, I absolutely dig it. Yeah. I like experiential learning. And if that was part of Accelerators, that would be amazing. But my expectations of humanity are much more down to earth now you know i just like matrix one ultimately the most rest of the movies are letdowns <laughs> yeah actually you know what it's interesting because this idea of warm-ups and acting exercises is kind of related to what virtual leap is doing but let's get that later so you're in portugal you just talked about being in spain but you're originally from vancouver right yeah i was born in iran and raised in in vancouver since i was four 1988 just at the end of the iraqi war my father brought us out of that region and I got installed with Canadian software right from the get-go. Right. Interesting. Tell me about your journey. How did you get to starting virtually? So um, I spent about 12 years now being an expat. When I was leaving Dubai, which was one of the places I was most, you know, the last decade, Mm. uh, my wife, she's Spanish, and we were on Operation Escape the Middle East and found that Europe was a place that suited us the most. And I tried to facilitate that whole move through a program that was based on design thinking that I was taking for about six months. And that program had this little mini accelerator of its own. And that was all about VR. I wanted to move into VR, AR, emerging tech. That's what you know really floats my boat just in general, and particularly the intersection with it and the sciences. Because I, what I'm seeing, especially in 2020, spectacularly so, is that science is starting to power these technologies and so through that program, I began at the same time writing a lot for VentureBeat and TechCrunch on, on virtual reality startups and the ecosystem, interviewing dozens and dozens of experts and more or less becoming an expert from the point of view of what you do before your podcast. I write through pages and pages of mind mapping of understanding a topic. And then I write about it once those mind maps are like exhausted. And hmm. that made me appreciate a lot of the landscape in a way that inform me on understanding that there is two different areas where VR 
especially serves as a critical use case, and that's education and healthcare. Mm. And side by side with that, the writing, I was doing these global web VR hackathons online, and I could see that there was a huge space and opportunity where my background as a market researcher and mobile games publisher, I was very interested in, in the opportunity of how VR opens up a whole new doorway into analytics and emotional analytics. We were trying to create biometric algorithms that could infer the emotional state of a user simply by tracking the body language, more or less trying to see if that flow of information could actually make content adaptive mm. and like, you know, responsive and highly accessible. Can it see when you're anxious and adapted into a more comfortable environment? A lot of cool things can kind of pop up. And after a year of doing a lot of R&D, we found that there was even a bigger opportunity in terms of what neuroscience could do with VR. And that was specifically in the cognitive assessment and training industry. Uh, you know, companies like Lumosity and Peak and Elevate and BrainHQ, which have been pioneering by making games that are inspired by cognitive sciences available on your smartphone, but they hit a ceiling invariably because they don't really engage the whole body. You know, all neuroscientists I speak to agree that cognition is embodied and that digital format needs to trigger the body into believing the experience is real for you to really engage a user in the cognitive environments, you know, in games. Yeah. And this insight about education and healthcare being particularly interesting, you know, we're going through this pandemic right now and there's this whole debate about kids going back to school or doing remote learning. And I think there's something about embodied cognition that we're not really directly addressing there, but that's really at play, right? I mean, kids need to be physically present in an environment that's educational just because there's not anything you can point to and say that particular thing is educational, but maybe even just traveling to the classroom, being in that learning environment, being surrounded by stimuli that are curated by a teacher, all those things contribute to this idea of embodied cognition. Mm. It's interesting that you mention education at a time like this. It's like, you know, education system is kind of the most intimidating one to approach as an entrepreneur because it feels like the hardest one to hmm. try to change in any shape or form. And maybe the second one is healthcare. Damn, yeah. And the only cool thing about healthcare is that there's a lot of privatized institutes, especially in your neck of the woods, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of sci-fi, transhumanism sorts of initiatives that do not happen out here in Europe. I see. But I was just thinking, I guess, of regulation and bureaucracy. Like, both of those areas are highly structured. Totally. But at least I can work with some privatized institutes with open-minded people. And then somehow the public system can go, hey, we really need to catch up here. This is getting embarrassing, the gap between the two. Whereas in education, you just have kind of like Waldorf schools um, here and there mm -hmm. and, and things like this. But more or less, most people just follow the same tune. I think that's going to change. Yeah, I think the coronavirus has only had that one benefit, which is accelerating our attention towards telehealth and teleeducation. Yeah, no, it's amazing how the way that we modeled education was based on the industrial revolution, right? I'm sure you've read this history and we Prussia. have, yeah, we, we have grades and the grade A meet has the same history as the grade <laughs> A student. Those, those came together at the same time. Oh, that's, that's, it's, it's pretty shocking. Well, your grade A meet, Dave, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, I, um, I really did badly in school. I could never really engage. And that's the, that's the opportunity with emerging technologies, you can actually make molecules alive. You know, you can literally blow up the universe and shrink it to an atom. And of course, those are things that you can experience right now in current digital realities of VR and AR. But 
fast forward five more years, man, and, yeah. and, and it's seamless. Yeah, yeah, totally. You're right. And just making knowledge visible and interactive. Right. And infusing it all with storytelling and bringing back mythology into our living reality. Oh, yeah. We should talk about mythology later. That's a really interesting topic. Okay, wait. So let's do Virtual Leap first. So, so your motivating idea behind Virtual Leap was using neuroscience to create VR experiences that would be new to world and innovative for education and healthcare. And then you mentioned analytics. Well, we had to like find the road, the opening to how to even begin. And at that time, you know, it wasn't so clear to us the brain training angle or the cognitive health angle. And ultimately, I'll talk about it later, digital phenotypes that we're going to be creating to be able to predict and detect early onsets of cognitive illnesses because of it, because of the data opportunity in terms of these games, what they're capturing. But we had to start somewhere. It didn't come like in a Mozart or Beethoven work of art that legend tells us they heard it in one go. Yeah. I've never had that kind of genius moment of Eureka where I feel the path and I know what's going on. I'm basically just kind of a rat in a maze that's being flooded and I'm knocking on doors and whichever door is open, I go into it and I continue following it. And so it was piece by piece. It was meandering down the road of talking and working with neuroscientists that were interested in this space, seeing what possibilities would open up. If you look at the amount of studies that month by month are being published on VR and therapeutic applications like pain management, desensitization therapy, behavioral therapy, cognitive health in our space, it is profound. And you can see that scientists are really digging what's going on here. And the technology is to thank because it's become smaller and become more comfortable. It's become better graphics. It's become cheaper. So it's accessible to everyone now in a way that people from previous waves of VR that are begrudgingly looking at what's happening now and going, damn it, I'm so old now. And, you know, we had the same ideas back there and same ideas and now they're working out, but they didn't work out back then. But unfortunately, the hardware just wasn't at the same maturity. Yeah. But now it is. And science is really merging for the first time I, with technologies like this. That's awesome. So there's all these science papers that are being published that show the value. But then you talked about a VR hangover in our previous call in 2018. What is that? That's the investors, you know? Yeah. I don't want to say anything negative necessarily because this is being published, but I'd love to. Especially in emerging tech, we have to deal with the investment world that follows its own models that are decades old. Yeah. And a lot of the times the investors who are applying their expectations and critiquing ideas that are in early stage, pre-revenue stage. They're applying rules of thumb that should be applied to companies that are post-revenue mm. and much more mature models. And so those growth stage mindsets of investors sometimes sabotages new industries like VR. They were really into gaming in 2013, 2014. It's like VR, gaming, next generation, you know? Yeah. And a lot of us out in the industry were like, no, gaming is cool, but it's escapism. VR is only a critical use case for education and healthcare, education and health. And so it took until 2018. By that time, a lot of the early investors and a few years before, they just gave up on it. Like it, it was um, not going to work out. But actually, in the meantime, there were sober and quiet stories of success where Boeing and Porsche and the automotive sector and the airline sector and you know Lockheed Martin, NASA, all these industries that are using it for very serious use cases, they were like, iterating and polishing but they didn't have the journalist and the media hype mm. tagged to them like the gaming sector does right and right oh so, you know vr is dead 
but they conflate consumer with enterprise mm. and education. They conflate it. So if, if gaming is dead, the rest is dead. It's you right. know, and so that's what I meant by the hangover. It's an, the investors departed and simplified things, mm. and the rest of us startups who survived this winter in the last couple of years, we call ourselves cockroaches. <laughs> So these experiences you're talking about, like Boeing, NASA, these are called serious games, right? I think I've heard that term. What is that? So, so some of them would be labeled serious games, but a lot of the examples in, in automotive and airlines was like uh, remote collaboration, being able to do zero latency surgeries, the help of 5G. I'm sure we'll talk about that later. A lot of automotive use cases were how to make the design process more innovative and intuitive mm-hmm. and bring in people from all over and you know, when you can use collaboration and prototyping tools in VR and bring in all of your toolkits into one playground, there's a lot of magical things that can happen again. Yeah. Right? I have a friend who works at JPL and he told this story at a, at a conference recently. He's helping design the Mars rover and he creates AR systems so that groups of engineers can get together and collaborate. And he was talking about how there was this debate about the clearance of some part at the bottom of the rover over the ground. And there was a debate about, you know, is it fine or is it not fine? Like, is there enough clearance or not? And he set up this AR environment and let them kneel down and look under the rover. And they're like, oh, I see. Okay, there's not enough clearance. And done. Like, it was this days-long discussion was finished. And so there's embodied learning. It's so important for people to be able to not only do embodied learning, but do it together. They call it spatial computing too, which is really a nice term for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how does the experience actually work? So last week we released the full version of Enhanced VR Brain Training, which is essentially the next generation of apps like Lumosity and Peak. It's a growing library of games that have been designed by a neuroscientist and then created by game developers, 3D artists, to essentially allow cognitive science to work for the first time in, in the setting of games. So, so what, what's basically happened is that apps like Lumosity have sometimes been fined by uh, the regulatory bodies because they say too much in their marketing. Like, we're going to help you remember how to uh, remember your grocery list better if you mm-hmm. play our games regularly. You can be, be faster. You know, it's like that limitless pill promise. Right. The science hasn't really peer-reviewed and conclusively said it works. And so there's a little bit of infamy in the brain training sector. And my particular hypothesis of our company is that brain training can only work when there's an embodied digital format and and VR is the first one. And AR, of course, our app is in VR, you turn it on, you play 10 minutes per session per day, or as frequently as you'd like, you play a random number of games, like three, and it tests your memory skills one game. And the next game tests your flexibility skills and problem-solving skills. And then one is motor skills and spatial orientation. And so you have this, you know, wholesome gym for the mind experience Mm. that you get to jump into and jump out of in a matter of 10 to 15 minutes. And that app will continue to add new games to it to exhaust the number of games that can possibly be made based on translating well-known neuropsychological tests like the like Stroop test, you know, mismatching um, numbers and colors or objects and different types of activities, but then also being able to leverage the virtual reality environment of 360 depth environments and so on. So on the one hand, we have that app and that is very much B2C, primary end user of a consumer. Mm-hmm. But we've also created a web application a dashboard for organizations like hospitals and clinics and senior living communities and perhaps schools and companies even, that they can use to manage and monitor the cognitive performance of their 
users or their patients or their students um, and slice and dice the data in ways that are important to them. You know, we've even created a remote control feature that allows a clinician or, or a healthcare practitioner to remote control the app experience of their patient. In case that person is disoriented or a little nervous, they can just move it from game to game for them hmm. and do all that stuff. So it's a real telehealth oriented experience as well. And you said the sessions are very short, right? So are you, you're imagining that this person would go through like a few minutes of cognitive training. Is it right before a task? Like, for example, I should have done this for like uh, 10 minutes before doing this podcast so that I'd be more articulate type of thing. Or is it every morning or is it? It's a, it's a counterpart to physical health and physical exercise. And mm-hmm. so some people like to go for around the morning. Some go into the day. Some people go to the gym at different times. I like to go in the morning. So I probably would perhaps use it in the morning. I'm very much against long form VR. I think virtual reality is for short term short you know experiences that are intense and surgical and help you enhance your life the Mm -hmm. real world life i'm against anything that's longer than 20 minutes in general maybe that will change once the form factor of the devices get better and more comfortable and so on but i don't there's an anti-technologist strain in me that's always active too i don't want technology to outrun itself a little bit when when we do see spatial computing become pervasive that's the advantage of using augmented reality and ultimately if Apple releases something along those lines, like everyone's suspecting maybe we're closer down that road, but you know, even bionic uh, lenses, uh, contact lenses that are being created, that's AR and that's using spatial computing that's assisting your life, allowing you to real-time translate if you're in a foreign country or navigate or fix your car with an avatar popping up right next to your roadside assistance and pointing at what you need to fix and going to Disneyland and Mickey Mouse uh, helps you buy your tickets and then walks you through the, the magical realm and Again, I know we're going to talk about mythology later, but that's mythology. You were bringing back um, avatars and sprites powered by 5G, and that's AR, and that's the magic first, and that's the that's uh, spatial computing being pervasive, using it for long time per day. But right. virtual reality is not. It's like going to Plato's cave and meditate on your existence and come out. You know, it's more right, so. right, right. Because you're going somewhere. So the longer you're gone, actually, I. Just as an experiment, there's a new VR app that lets you sit at your desktop computer. Right. Virtual desktop. Pretty popular. It, it wasn't that one. It's a different one, but it, it's a great idea. And actually, it was successful in that I completely lost track of time. Like I was reading and doing email and doing LinkedIn. It sort of felt like reading on a 1990s computer, very pixelated, <laughs> you know, kind of blurry. Uh, right. But I, was, I read like 50 pages of a PDF. And then I was like, all right, I'm going to turn this thing off. And... Um, I had to take Advil. I was a mess. Something very wrong happened there. My face hurt. My, my eyes were crossing. So it just goes to show you that VR still, it, it's not quite there for long-term experiences and it may not be for a while. I agree completely. And, you know, I've written some small things about this where, you know, there's a lack of research on what even happens when you're in, in virtual reality for extended periods of time. And mm. some of these things might improve as the graphics and the rendering and the you know you get into 4k environments and so on but some of these things i think are actually quite more about the embodiment on the other side of the not the negative side but maybe the the dangers and the perils of it like let's say for example i wrote something and studied some stuff around the idea that if you're in a vr environment and you start playing around with your self-perception if you look in the mirror in vr and it's not your face or if you 
look at your arms and actually the proprioception is off. The arms are too long. Yeah. These could trigger discordant issues in our, in our senses. Because when I go on the top of a mountain, I think I'm on the top of the mountain and my fear of heights, my phobia is triggered. And then similar, there's an idea that you might, even if you're in extended periods of VR, you might have to do this, um, like the movie, um, sphere with uh, dustin hoffman where you know they're so deep in the ocean that once they go up they have to be in the decompression chamber mm. you might have to go through a vr slash reality decompression psychological chamber that allows you to re-enter the real world and not look at the mirror in the real world and go crap i'm feeling something weird about looking at myself am i on acid am i or or like what you know yeah, like yeah, yeah. gotta keep that in mind that's a great idea actually you know now that vr headsets have pass-through cameras, you could imagine like slowly reintegrating you into the world exactly. or slowly putting you in VR. It's very jarring to put on a headset and then take it off. Sounds like ayahuasca or a mushroom trip, honestly. Like, you know, we need to tread lightly and carefully yeah. on some of these things because a lot of, um, at any time there's a new industry like this, there's always gold rush mentality and there's people who enter the space first and foremost to make a buck. Yeah. And like, that's definitely what I saw when I got into the industry about five years ago, which in the VR industry, five years is like doggy years. It's actually like feel like 20 years. Yeah. But back then, it was lots of people demoing really poorly done environments and experiences that caused a lot of nausea. And a lot of people who tried it for the first time had a really bad first impression. And those people didn't care. They were just at exhibitions, getting buying their boots, trying to sell wrong intentions. And so I think now we're seeing a lot of more serious people come in, a lot of them with engineering backgrounds and medical backgrounds and rocket science backgrounds. You know, this um, next wave is very, very promising because mm. of those people and the talent. You mentioned ayahuasca is like a, maybe a little bit of a joke, but it's actually, there's this concept of digiceuticals, right? We are a digiceutical, for example. Okay. The best example of digiceuticals, so it's digital therapies, digiceuticals or digital pharmaceuticals, Achilles Labs raised 140 million, Boston-based, crazy pioneering company uh, inspired by Adam Ghazali, a very, very important thinker and neuroscientist that has pushed games as medicine, games that ultimately can be used as prescribed treatments for health and cognitive issues that ultimately otherwise would be treated with prescription drugs. And so last month, Endeavor RX, their game for pediatric ADHD, was declared by FDA the first game is medicine, the first game that a doctor can prescribe as a treatment in lieu of any drugs. So last month, this just happened. Yeah. And there's no CNN, BBC coverage, because on the one hand, you got politicians blocking the sunlight and, and then you have coronavirus constantly. And this news is like walking on the moon as far as people like me are concerned. And yeah. it's just like came and went and no one even noticed that Games are now medicine. This next decade is going to be a huge period of digiceuticals. Hmm. Yeah. Education, healthcare, yeah. therapy, what can help you and educate you and be fun at the same time is all going to start blurring lines. ADHD, that's Endeavor RX. That's the first one. I'm mentoring a startup called PNI um, Therapeutics. Amazing retired uh, executive at MasterCard is making this his mission to create VR experiences that amplify the placebo effect and therefore can improve patient outcomes in areas like cancer treatment and so on. When we talk about digiceuticals and low-hanging fruit, we, we think about the extremes first. Like how can we help the people in, in the suffering the most extreme debilitating kind of conditions? Mm -hmm. And so I think about mental disorders and mental health. 
um, you know, cognitive disorders like schizophrenia. There's one game that we just created, for example, that's based on the research of University of Cambridge, Dr. Barbara Sahakian. She had created the game that by playing the game, and the game was designed to test episodic memory. It's a type of long-term memory. And it's like basically matching certain types of subtle patterns mm -hmm. in a very fast way. It's a game called Magic Deck that we have. And when you play this game, what you're doing with your brain is ultimately exercising a, like a literal part of the brain that is also associated with schizophrenia. And so by playing this type of activity, you're at the exact same time exercising a muscle that if it's exercised can actually decrease schizophrenia. Hmm. You know, it's a non-intuitive idea that sounds so intuitive once you hear it. It's like, oh, wait, digisuticals uh, to treat cognitive disorders, cognitive illnesses like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, autism. These are the kind of areas that I would predict will be the early low-hanging fruits of areas that will be treated on this. You know, it's funny because we go and we partner with institutes like Pacific Brain Health Center in California. We're in talks with the Center for Brain Health and Research Institute in Seattle, Center for Brain Health at University of Texas. We're in talks with all these different institutes. We're talks with uh, different hospitals and each one of them has their own agenda of where they would like to take the technology. Mm -hmm. So we kind of haven't been so directing it ourselves. So for example, the VA Medical Health Center in San Francisco, we're in touch with an amazing principal investigator, David Pennington, and he's interested in addiction and how addiction causes accelerated cognitive deterioration in veterans. Diabetes, White Plains Hospital, and talks with them and also the biggest hospital in Barcelona that I can't pronounce on this podcast without embarrassing myself, but they're interested in diabetes as something that accelerates cognitive deterioration. That means both from the point of view of people with addictions and people who have diabetes, there's a more likely chance of perhaps getting conditions like Alzheimer's earlier. Mm. So, so then you go brain training designed according to cognitive science for the purposes of one, diagnosing and detecting mm -hmm. whether there is any condition right. or even an early onset of it. And then with research, phase one, phase two trials, is there a way to even apply it as a preventative solution? Oh, yeah, <laughs> you know? for sure. Yeah, well, you mentioned the singularity. I don't know what to think about that anymore. What's your take? So we have a lot of interesting technologies right now at the brink of perhaps starting acceleration that has not really been experienced before. But even with emerging technologies like virtual reality, I can tell you in the last five years as someone in the industry, the rapid iteration is it's unprecedented mm. in terms of what's happening and how fast it's evolving. But we're like frogs in a slowly heating up pot, mm -hmm. the water boiling, we don't notice it. And so the singularity to me is some of these key technologies like 5G is certainly one of them, mm -hmm. along with spatial computing, along with AI and the branches of AI. If those three intersect at a certain point, because 5G is not really becoming pervasive yet. And that means that edge servers aren't becoming pervasive yet. And that means the hardware is not getting lighter, lighter, as we should probably expect them to do. But once they start doing that, I think there's a certain point, an initial singularity, like a precursor of some sort, that hopefully we do as a frog realize, shit, we're in boiling water, guys. My mentality is still very positive about what that means. The applications mean mythology back on earth. That's one of the examples, you know, yeah. sprites and avatars that are powered by machine learning into yeah. a sort of sentience, the virtual being movement. You know, there's a lot of virtual beings now yeah. being created with tech in LA, the hotspot of virtual being startups. I used to call them autonomous avatars, yeah. but I'm getting bullied into calling them virtual beings. Yeah. Virtual beings are chatbot technology that gets powered up with sentiment analysis, you know, the different branches of AI, you know, right. computer vision can see 
um, and reads your facial expressions and use the API to understand what those facial expressions mean in terms of emotions, put a little bit of sentiment analysis there and try to break up your syntax and understand what that means, pattern recognition across all of the different AI branches in order to feed into that chatbot and make it pass the Turing test of convincing you it's another human being, another sentient being. Virtual beings are probably going to start to participate in Hollywood, um, especially now that we can't go on the movie sets like we used to. I think there's a lot of money going towards how can virtual beings be the, the extras and uh, the humans when you're watching NBA games very soon. Uh, will there be virtual beings in the audience? I know I don't like it too much in certain ways, but it's really cool in other ways, you know? No, it's totally true. I hadn't thought of that because I read an article recently about a movie that's going to star a virtual being as the lead. And it's like, that's cool. It's a huge challenge, but it's totally extras that are going to get it first, right? I mean, that's it. Yeah. That's it. I hope so. I hope so because I don't like the uncanny valley. Right. And that's the term that means as a human, we're wired to know what is reality and what is not. That's why the psychological decompression is required mm -hmm. of going in VR, especially mm -hmm. things that can be off can really mess with you. And when you look at another entity that's supposed to be replicating a human and you notice something's off, we do not like that. And so the best example is Robert De Niro in what's that movie he just made? Oh, I with, know what you're talking about. You know, yeah. and, and Pesci. Yeah. And it was a Scorsese. Yeah. He's driving a truck in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. killing people. <laughs> we <laughs> but, both know this movie. But, but that we can't remember the name says something about it. I watched it. I endured it. I enjoyed it. But right from the beginning, something was off. They were trying to make Robert De Niro into um, a younger version. And yet in the scene... They don't realize that hey, he's walking like an old man. Um, mm -hmm. You have to change the gait. You have to change all of these subliminal elements that humans are hardwired into recognizing that that's a correct representation of a sentient human being. When you just change the face and you don't change the way that the back has kind of changed in alignment of old De Niro versus young De Niro yeah. and the way that he takes steps or gets off the couch, uh, you know, how fast he gets off. There's all these little things. Mm. You have to take care of that because humans are unaware of how our circuitry works in a very subliminal and unconscious way. Yeah, yeah. Well, and going back to virtually, I mean, you don't have to imitate reality necessarily at all to make an effective digiceutical, right? Do you think that there's an advantage to imitating reality? Like, would it be more effective digiceutical if it was more realistic? Or can you wander off into Tron fantasy world and make like effective brain training apps? I would say that the more virtual reality becomes a real identical simulacrum mm -hmm. of living reality. If it can become like the matrix at will and really trick you into believing it is a real world, whereas it's a virtual one, we're talking about Vanilla Sky. Vanilla Sky is a good example. He was put into a world where he could not distinguish it. And there's a negative connotation to that version. But the more we can do that in a virtual reality and make it indistinguishable, I think we forget that we're living in organic bodies Actually, and it's interesting to think about the near enemy and the far enemy of VR content, right? Because we talked about the far enemy, which is the idea of using it for nefarious purposes. Like, obviously, you can manipulate people. So the temptation will be strong to build experiences that manipulate people into giving you money in one way or another. <laughs> right, right. I didn't even think about that. You know, yeah. like whether it be advertising or, or the kinds of models we've seen in social media. But then there's the near enemy, which is you think you're doing good. You think you're making 
digiceutical, but you wind up traumatizing people in some subtle way that doesn't even show up with the test that we have today. So it's an interesting thing to think about. You know, you obviously have to go through very methodical scientific study to ensure that the effects you're seeing are safe and actually real. Yeah, and I, I certainly, as someone who's just thinking more and more about it, I'm becoming more mature in my appreciation of regulatory bodies. Hmm. You know, and I hope they can't be old school, that they don't embrace the technology and can't flow with it mm -hmm. versus being rigid versus being too fluid, greasing the wheels too much in periods like this where we have crisis and they're trying to accelerate telehealth solutions, but maybe they shouldn't be in some cases, but it should be for some other cases. But that said, the FDA seems to be really, really backing virtual reality and AI and all sorts of cases. And yeah. I suppose the bad actors and the bad situations, they have to happen just like they always do. Mm. And we'll deal with it like we always do, ultimately, the trajectory of society and how we're experiencing things is on an upward slope. There's a median score that's going in a direction of positivity. Yeah, yeah. So you're building up this library of games. What's next? Digital phenotyping. So so I wrote an article in September for Venture Beating. It's the last one. Like, don't have, I can't enjoy that process anymore. I'm just no time. But my last article was all about featuring a game called Sea Hero Quest that was developed by the UK's Alzheimer's Association and funded by Deutsche Telekom. And it was a game that was designed to test spatial navigation in this game that you're in a boat and you have to travel from A to B to some point to point. And there was a mobile version and a VR version. And they found that two minutes of VR gameplay generated over five hours worth of lab research for the study of Alzheimer's. And that they ended up with well over 2,000 years worth of research data that they will never be able to make any use of as a treasure trove without the help of machine learning. <clears throat> so if you consider that idea and what volumetric gameplay patterns mean in terms of unprecedented data, the most simple devices capture like well over 16 different data points, you know? And so you have this crazy volumetric big data um, play that's happening and the opportunity to mine it to see insights that we could never ever get to um, without machine learning. And so in that light, if you look at our game library, what is it? It's a, a library of games that serve just as much as scientific instruments as they do as games. You know, We've created this game scoring system called the Enhanced Performance Index, and it's essentially an algorithm that gives you an objective sort of IQ score per game and then per category and then ultimately a universal EPI. When you take that into account, you put it into the, the context of volumetric gameplay patterns and data sets, we want to create machine learning powered algorithms that essentially detects patterns and can potentially detect the early onset of a condition up to 20 years or so before it happens. We know that, for example, Parkinson's can be detected in all sorts of ways. It can even be detected by hearing someone's voice and putting it into a, you know, there's patent oriented technologies that can hear the bands, the end and beginning of the the voice and, and actually there's biomarkers there. Wow. Um, so put that stuff into a VR gamified scenarios and environments and you take that, you put it with machine learning, you put it with third-party integrations with biometrics like eye tracking and EEG and you integrate smart uh, watches with heart rate variability mm -hmm. and you see what kind of opportunities you have in terms of being able to proactively address situations health-wise and mentally well before they ever happen. And again, those kind of issues, are, of course, in this day and age has also the near enemy and far enemy um, situations. But uh, man, the benefits, if we approach it right, are just too profound not to pursue 
um, yeah. in, a, in a careful way. The data warehousing and analysis challenge is massive, right? I mean, even just experiencing a volumetric video or environment is intensive enough. Now you're talking about recording that in multiple different iterations and permutations for you know hundreds of people to do a study. It's totally mind-boggling. Like, how do you even start the analytics process? Are there companies that are specializing in volumetric analytics for the type of work you do? The server costs are not fun. So if there's any investors listening to this, help us. Okay. But anyways, um, uh, not really. We're working with some AI specialists and companies and trying to collaborate with them because they do have the specialties and we don't. Um, but, but you're talking about something that's immediately on our plate right now. That's the issue. That's the issue. Absolutely. And that's part of the reason we're in this program in New York right now. We're trying to have them help us connect us with all sorts of specialists and try to hmm. go down that road without making unfortunate mistakes unnecessarily. Awesome. Well, do you have any upcoming dates or milestones that you want to mention? So we just released the full version of Enhanced VR Brain Training, and now we're just building up that game library. So we're trying to hit a threshold of about 12 to 15 games by Christmas. And then at that point, if you're playing regularly, you won't have too much repetition as you may have now with our current six games. So now to the end of the year is a real sprint. Yeah. Congrats on the release, by the way. How is it going? It's just, you know, it's always anticlimactic. I think is the answer, you know, right. it's like, I you think it's going to be a great moment. And then you're just too busy with preparing for the next level of the boss, you know, it's a, a Nintendo game. Right, right. Well, where can we get enhanced VR? So it's on Oculus for the Rift right now. It's on HTC for the Vive Focus Plus. It's on Steam VR. And we're looking to launch on PSVR eventually. And also for the Oculus's Quest, we're going to be applying for submission there. So everywhere that it possibly can be, you should find it if you have a headset. Awesome. All right. Where can we follow your work online? So you can come visit our website, virtualeap.com, V-I-R-T-U-L-E-A-P.com. We're very active on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you need to contact me personally, my email is amir at virtualeap.com. Thank you, Amir. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show. And I'm looking forward to seeing where Enhanced VR goes next. Thank you so much, Dave. Thanks for listening. More information about this show is available at podcast.davebernbaum.com. Beats by Ilium C. Full spectrum. The only difference is environment.